Hi, thank you everybody for having me here and Remy for organizing uh, the trip here. I said to Ruby Bible last night, I almost feel, when you've been someplace four times in five years, you almost feel like an adjunct faculty member and that's what it's kind of been. And so uh, I'm going to present kind of a relaxed talk today. There'll be some in-depth analyses and whatnot, but I know for a number of people type 1 diabetes isn't the thing, it's type 2 diabetes. So we're going to go through here, but uh, again, Thank you, thank you so much for having me. And uh, again, because we did the CME, they, they were part of this, so everybody memorize it real quick. Okay, yeah, then we got it. But nothing uh, that we talk about today is gonna have any pharmaceutical efforts. So, I am gonna begin the talk today with what's gonna seem like three minutes of commercial. So if, you, if it's, uh, it's not the middle of the night, but I, I need to get this a little bit of a commercial, just so you have a background to the rest of the talk, which is science in terms of what, what we're doing. And as, as Remy said in his introduction, a lot of what I'm going to present today is the work, result of what we call ANPOD, which is a network for pancreatic organ owners with diabetes. It's interesting, in the United States, about 2.5 million people die every year. Uh, about 100,000 individuals become tissue donors. About 8,000 individuals become organ donors. So 2.5 million people die, and only about 8,000 8, become organ donors. Of those, about 5,000, actually donate for research. And then if you pare it down for that, we only obtain about 1,100 pancreases a year in the whole United States for research, either islets or whatnot. But we have coast-to-coast -coast coverage. All 65 OPOs work with us. So if you are on call 24-7-365, so if somebody dies with diabetes, we pretty much get a call. And uh, so we operate in Gainesville like Memphis does for Prevalent Express. I mean, it doesn't matter where the organs and tissues come, they come into Gainesville, we process them and then distribute them around the world. And our goal is to distribute these tissues free of charge, again, highlighted underlined, to investigators in a way to try and promote research efforts. We're trying to, uh, in type 1 diabetes, human, human tissues. And beyond that, we also have missions in MPOT to try and kind of coordinate issue, uh, questions and encourage collaborations. And all of this with the goal of trying to better understand what causes the type 1 diabetes, because if we could better understand that, we think we might be able to, to bring a cure to the disease. So what MPOT does is, is, again, when an individual comes in and they're an organ donor, some of the tissues will go off for a transplant, so as the organ recovery individuals are going through and removing heart, lung, liver, kidney, they then move on to MPOD tissues. So these tissues are processed in the same way as if they're going for organ transplantation. And we obtain them from not only individuals with type 1 diabetes, but people throughout the natural history of the disease, meaning people that are autoantibody positive, they haven't had a diagnosis yet, to individuals that have had the disease for a long time. But we also obtain tissues from a number of other um, different uh, situations from uh, studies on development, pregnancy, pancreatitis, type 2 diabetes, CFRD, etc. Um, and we not only obtain the pancreas, but we obtain a number of lymphoid tissues and other tissues, including ones that uh, are, are of interest in, uh, here at Columbia, including the skin. And we work with Dieter on that, Dieter Engel and Rudy. Um, and then we process these fresh cells, frozen cells, fixed cells, RNA layer, not autopsy tissue. There's no stink factor here. They um, are really high quality tissue and if you want information on that, we can do it. So we're very proud of this. We started some seven years ago 
And now we're to the point where in the MPOT collection, we, we've gone to where we have uh, 300 cases. We just had three, our 300 case last month. And you can see, if you look in the area of type 1 diabetes, we have all, a little over 100 cases. If you look at individuals with type 2 diabetes, we have about three dozen cases. And then uh, with uh, controls, which is a very important area for us, we have about 103 individuals from even so it's a 0, 0.0, it's from 20 weeks gestation up to about 75 um, years of age to try and again understand the pancreas across a broad spectrum of ages. When we started NPOD, and I was reflecting with Remy about this last night, and Paul Harris here was with us in the beginning, we back in 2006, actually, I didn't put 2006 on the slide, there was a, a thought that people wouldn't be interested in type 1 tissues, and so we had initially six projects, and now we've kind of exploded to where NPOD, we now support 148 projects, not individuals, but 148 projects in 17 countries around the world, um, all in an effort to try and better understand type 1 diabetes. As I said, NPOD not only will, will supply you tissues free of charge if you're of interest, but in addition, we, we have arranged all these working groups, which is a really novel concept where we have about 54 people working in this like um, NPOD-B group, for example, that we've heard about viruses being involved in diabetes for, you know, it's, it's older than me, that notion, but it's been a lot of just individuals and the papers come out from individual groups, but there's never been a concerted effort where Dozens of individuals collectively went through and, and tried to examine is there a role of viruses and disease. And so we've been forming these work groups and, and feel like they uh, have a, a way that through working together, um, making uh, not just baby steps in terms of understanding the disease, um, but uh, actually making some pretty good leaps. And so if there's anything you're interested in from uh, uh, beta cells to genomics, we have either groups started, or we have a group in uh, genomics that just started that's doing exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing on, on again, the NPOT collection. And um, I, all of the, one of the nice things about NPOT is the data becomes publicly available. And so um, I'd encourage you, if you're interested in this, to either email me or go to the website and then follow through the portal there because, again, on our website, it'll have their form investigators and then information about how to obtain NPOT tissues. Um, this website has actually won a bunch of awards for its utility. Um, the other thing you can that's nice in that is not every, pathology is not everybody's thing, but you can the NPOT uh, has now thousands of stored images, thousands of stored images from pancreatic sections and uh, other tissues from individuals that I were represented in the previous slide, so you can go on, do zoom in, high resolution analyses um, for baseline. And then the other interesting thing is, is that we're now rolling out, this has been a working group feature, but one of the things that MPOD really tried to do was to um, capture raw data. So we, I think for the first time in type 1 diabetes, now have a tool where Let's say somebody puts out a paper, we have, we, and, uh, uh, we have a number of these now. They publish a paper in diabetes, JCI, whatever, um, with NPOD cases. What we request is that the investigator send all their raw data back, and it now goes into this portal that's 
I say freely accessible by password. It is, and you just have to get a password. And then you can do subsequent analysis of, uh, on these cases where you can combine certain proteomics, histology, flow cytometry, whatever. So we're really trying to take things to a next level. So that is a bit, that's the commercial, that's the infomercial part. So hopefully somebody will, will email and, and say I'm interested in infot tissues. But the real talk of the day is, is organizations are fine, but what did we actually learn about the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes and how it goes? And I, I put that notion of the rewriting of the textbooks out there as an actual truth. Um, I was sharing with uh, your director, Rudy, last night. I've been given the charge of um, writing a textbook called Williams Textbook of Endocrinology, and it was last updated about four years ago. And I've essentially changed about 75% of it because the information was either errant or wrong or not updated. And I think what, we're, what you'll hear in the rest of the talk today is, is where, where we really are in terms of type 1 diabetes. And it's not that people are doing a bad thing. Meaning if you, if you look at the natural history of diabetes, uh, if you've ever gone to a talk on the disease, most every talk has a slide, some version of a slide of this, uh, and it's by a, one of my best colleagues, friends, collaborators in life, George Eisenbach, who unfortunately died two years ago from pancreatic cancer, but it's a model like this where you're born with 100% of your islet cells, beta cells, you have varying genetic, genetic susceptibilities and genes, you're strumming along in life, and then something comes along, this trigger, that an environment like a virus, that's the classical thought. And then you begin a process of autoimmunity and you get this linear loss of beta cells. And then the classic thing, when people show up in the clinic is you say, oh, you've lost 85 to 95% of your beta cells, so now you're gonna have diabetes, and then with it, you may honeymoon in here, but within a short period of time, you're gonna lose all your beta cells, all your insulin secreting capacity. And a lot of this has been developed on, on good foundational studies, meaning we've studied, uh, you know, we've our genetics. Um, I try giving estimates on this, but I think probably yeah, over a million people have been genotyped for type 1 diabetes risk and follow for varying uh, uh, efforts of disease. We have a lot of studies that look at autoantibodies, certainly animals we'll touch upon. A lot of evidences, you know, Probably we've had at least a half million, if not a million, NOD mice study in terms of all working off of this model. I mean, this is the crux for what we work on. But the real striking thing is, is that, and again, as Remy said in the introduction, I'm actually in the Department of Pathology, and what we've, I would say that we, and this is why we started talking this up in 2005, we forgot about the pancreas and the disease. And uh, again, the, the, the first description of the insulitic lesion, or what we eventually in the 1940s became known as insulitis, meaning the white blood cell infiltrate of the pancreas in type 1 diabetes, was actually described by a German pathologist in 1904. But probably the most widespread um, description of the pancreas in type 1 diabetes was a guy named Willie Gaps who published a, a paper. Uh, who has solo author papers anymore? But 
He did this in, in two, uh, 1965, where he described the pancreas and type 1 diabetes, and he had a few dozen cases um, but, uh, of individuals that had what we would believe in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And this, it was, autopsies kind of stopped in the country, this United States and globally in the 70s, early 80s. Uh, and it, it just, this is a, we had the rise of the animal models, so this field went fallow. And a, a good friend of mine, Peter Indel from Brussels, published this paper a couple years ago. And to me, this was profound. Meaning, if you heard anything, the numbers I keep throwing out, we've studied a million mice, we've studied a million people for genetics, but if you actually look, take the total combined history of what's been reported in the pancreas of human type 1 diabetes and look at the onset of the disease, the total literature, it's about three dozen cases. And only about 14 cases if you were diagnosed with disease after the age of 15. Talk about a shortcoming. So, and this was bizarre because essentially pathology is the basis of much of what we do. I mean, if you're going for a biopsy, if you do whatever, we're a pathology-based driven society. But somehow along the way, we forgot this in terms of human pathology and type 1 diabetes, human pancreas. And so this, we thought, was a major shortcoming. I mean, Peter came out with this later, but we, we think that this is an opportunity to really understand the disease. So what I'm going to talk to you uh, for the time today is about, well, what have we learned from MPOT? And one of the first things I, I want to reaffirm is, is that there is an autoimmune component to type 1 diabetes. And this is largely based on the uh, insulitis and immune-based changes. But with that, I want to make, make something very clear. Um, as Remy said, I've been uh, around the field for a reasonable amount of time. And um, one of the things that uh, errantly I think has been thrown on me is that I pick on NOD mice. And I don't pick on NOD mice. I do a lot of studies on NOD mice. But I will say this is that, again, in the speakers that come to your seminars here, in their introductory slides, if they don't show that Eisenbar slide, they're going to show a slide of insulitis. And typically, they're going to show something like this. That'll, and they'll say, this is the reason of type 1 diabetes and insulitis. But the problem is, is that the insulitis that we see in mice, and if we, I, again, in NOD, and I'm not bashing NOD, you stage it from a normal islet to a little periencelitis, a lot of periencelitis to infiltrate it. In humans, it's, is it there or not? Can you find it anywhere? And it, when you do see it, it's very subtle. I mean, it's totally different. And we think that this has impact because a lot of the therapeutic trials, efforts we've been doing, we've been trying to prevent this. This doesn't exist in humans. Go on that a little more. In fact, now we're getting to the point what we call the elusive insulitis lesion, meaning that we're, we, through NPOD and then our colleagues in Brussels, have been taking multiple organs from individuals on their way to type 1 diabetes. So these are multiple autoantibody positive individuals. Sometimes people will have four autoantibodies. The if you have four autoantibodies, which mark your risk for diabetes, the chances of you developing type 1 diabetes in the next decade approach 100%. You are going to get the disease. But when we look at the pancreas, we often don't see any insulitis at all. 
what we do see is the situations where um, there'll be essentially uh, islet cells devoid of beta cells or normal beta cells. Sometimes we see insulitis, but it is a rare lesion. And we'll get it, uh, uh, into it, but it seems like in the humans it's a situation where it's kind of a hit and run. And this is conjecture, it's hypothesis, but the immune system goes in, destroys a, uh, an islet cell, and then moves on. It's a very elusive region. And then the other thing is that we, MPOT brought together a group of experts. Essentially, if you had published a paper on the insulitis in the last 20 years, we brought a group together and tried to uh, define a consensus statement on what insulitis is in humans. And it, it was published in Diabetologia last year, and it, it was profound. You saw the, the NOD figure where it was just this massive insulitis. In humans, in a whole pancreas, a whole pancreas, if you can find three islets with 15 white cells in it, that's insulitis. We have to do this because even at this diagnosis, this is profound too. You, you would say this is like next to nothing. At the, even at this level, only 30% of individuals over the age of 15 at the time of onset have this definition of insulitis. 30%. If you're under 15, at onset about 70%. So again, unless you're, if you're working in type 1 diabetes, this is like total change of thought because we've been all trained to think this massive insulitis, this profound infiltrate, almost looking like transplant rejection, it's very subtle, very subtle. And it's going to get even more subtle as we go on. But this, this is the, now the consensus definition of insulitis. Three islets in a whole pancreas, which is really profound when you think also of a lot, most of our therapies that have tried to reverse the disease. And I was um, uh, talking about this yesterday. Um, we, we try and carpet bomb or blast an individual with type 1 diabetes at their onset disease with powerful immunosuppressants. We, we, we carpet bomb what is really a sniper attack. So again, maybe we can talk about that in discussion. But these, these results have been so profound in NPOT that in January this year, uh, a group, a beta cell biologist wrote an article in saying, well, heck, is type 1 diabetes even an autoimmune disease? Which I wouldn't go that far, but I do. I would say that the there's some there's other components to it, and we're going to get on that in a, in a few moments. Now, again, I don't want to leave the impression, or you will, leave, if anybody leaves the room saying it's not an autoimmune disease or there is an immune component, I don't want you to. I'll, I'll fail what I do, but when you do see insulitis, it is interesting because again, it's a very mixed lesion that you can see, and this is like a, a high-end when a case where we see the most infiltrate. You'll see, um, again, the most predominant cell, there are CD8 cells, there's a mixture of B cells, some macrophages, so Remy's happy. But another interesting thing, comparing mice to man, is, is that in the mouse model, not hammer the mouse, the most predominant lesion in the, is usually a CD4 cell. In the human, the CD4 cell on the lymphoid origin was the least cells that we see. So here, once again, if we go in and we've been targeting most, if we want to wonder why we haven't cured type 1 diabetes, we've been largely trying to work on these cells and this insulitis, and then in humans, that's not 
quite where, where we probably need to go. Yeah, and then there's some other things we're learning from NPOD. Is again that um, there was this notion that well, the um, uh, the only time you'll see enzymes is if you have beta cells around, and, and that this process really clears up quickly. Remember the Eisenbach model. Well, no, that's not true. And that one of the things we'll show later, talking about beta cell persistence, you can have type one diabetes for decades, and there will still be a few remnant beta cells around. And often, if there's running beta cells around, you'll actually see traces of insulitis. So insulitis can actually persist. We'll talk about this later in terms of um, type 1 diabetes perhaps never going to completion, but this is a, certainly a change of thought. Now, again, the other, one of the other key reasons I want to say this is autoimmune is we had this paper at JEM uh, a couple years ago now that if you take a look at the... Uh, do in situ uh, staining and trying with tetramers and try and ask for the cells that are present in the lesion, and you can see in this eye that there's, there's two. Um, they are active, reactive to um, islet cell autoantigens or beta cell autoantigens, in this case IE2 and in this case IGRP. Um, so it's not, in, at least in terms of the islet so far, it doesn't appear to be uh, a random process. There is a a specificity to this. So it does appear to be uh, uh, an antigen-driven response. And the other thing that we really are lost on trying to understand, but we find very interesting, in the, especially the viral group, the other thing that you see in the uh, case settings of type 1 diabetes is this marked profound upregulation of class 1 MHC in, in the pancreas, both in the pre-diabetic stage and at onset. It, it can be sporadic, and you'll see various sections of the pancreas where this will be high, and in other ones where there'll be no MHC. But it is a situation where it almost seems as if there's an infection going on in the pancreas. And so we, there is, hopefully in this section, you'll see that um, there's an autoimmune component to type 1 diabetes. But here's where I think we as a community, or I as a community, I'll make it just in every one, have fallen short. And this is what got Rudy revved up last night at dinner. Is, oh, no, I'm sorry. Before I get into what Rudy got Rudy revved up. The other thing I want to point out that, that's really interesting is, is that a lot of things have changed in type 1 diabetes, but probably the disease has not. And why, why am I talking about here? So some of this is not NPOT data, but it, it, it'll set up the, the story. This is that... If you actually look at the global incidence of type 1 diabetes, it's going up everywhere. And in the last uh, half century, it's gone from, uh, in Finland, for example, from 10 cases per 100,000 individuals to about 60 cases. So, profound increase. And it's happened everywhere where there's good registries. And again, there's a 500-fold variation in the incidence of diabetes. Parts of China and India have the lowest rates, and then uh, Scandinavia has the highest. Um, but what's interesting is, is that um, over time, it, it appears that the genetic susceptibility required for type 1 diabetes is decreasing. Meaning, that again, as Ernie mentioned in the beginning, I've been doing this a long time. And when I came into the field, it was just a given that everybody who, most everybody that developed type 1 diabetes had an HLA DR3 or DR4. That was just given. But over time, the requirement to have to, uh, for this genetic, high genetic susceptibility is dropping dramatically. 
suggesting that something in the environment may be winning a battle, changing, and causing increased disease in populations that here before never had risk for the disease. But, what, and then the other thing that's kind of interesting is, is that about this is, is that we, again, this is a repeated thing, we kind of tend to think that all type 1 diabetes cases are the same. It's type 1 diabetes, is type 1 diabetes. We're faced with this challenge in that um, data published in The Lancet uh, two years ago uh, took a look at the frequency of type 1 diabetes as a function of age, meaning you saw the data where I said that it was rising dramatically uh, globally, but what group is it that is rising in as a function of age? And I don't know, what, for those of you that are clinics, I don't know if you've been here a while, maybe say, well, it's in teenagers, it's younger, but at least in Finland, most of that increase in type 1 diabetes has been in the very young, meaning children age 1 to 4. And so for a couple of years, in my slide decks, I was giving this talk and I was talking about uh, this change, but then we got stymied um, because uh, the NIH runs a study called the SEARCH study here in the United States, uh, analyzing the frequency of uh, diabetes in um, individuals under the age of 20, and it came out with essentially, this was published a few months ago, came out with the exact opposite results. So as, whereas in Europe, this is a disease that's increasing in frequency in the most young, here in the United States, the frequency is increasing in type 1 diabetes in those in the teen years, the older you get. And the only group that it wasn't increasing in this large, if you look at the p-value here, is in the very young. So again, what's going on here? It's increasing globally, it, um, but yet it's in different populations in Europe versus the United States. Is the pathology of the disease changing? And so what was interesting is MPOT organized this event in, in Exeter last year that essentially, if you had published studies on pancreas in human type 1 diabetes, you came there, there was a real revenge of the nerves movie lookalike, and that we sat around for three days just looking at slides under multi headed microscopes or on the screen. Um, but what we came out with was with uh, some pretty, for me at least, interesting findings is that we had hand, the earliest works were hand drawings of what pathologists saw in 1910 of the pancreas of type 1 diabetes. And then we compared it through uh, all the cases that we gathered from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, all the way to right before the meeting. And the interesting thing is the pathology of the disease hasn't changed. Meaning all of these other things in the environment, the genetic susceptibility has been changing. But the basic pathology of the disease hasn't changed. But again, some of the other things that we, 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 we're going to talk about is, is that, um, that, that are greatly underappreciated is, is that, that notion I kind of alluded to earlier that it's almost as if there's two different diseases, meaning it was very rare going back to the last hundred years of insulitis cases to find insulitis in anybody that was diagnosed um, over the age of, say, 15 to 20. It really became a, a much more rare event than if you were saw insulitis in younger ages. Another thing that was we uh, noted was that of islet size, and I'll show a picture of this in a few moments. Uh, type 1 diabetic patients seem to have big islets. 
we'll talk about lobular distribution of what we call pseudoatrophic islets. But if I then if my 15 white blood cell notion wasn't profound enough earlier, now in this group we didn't publish this yet. But in order to in a pre-diabetic state, we had some pre-diabetes slides. We actually said we made it define in slides as having three white blood cells and three islets in the whole pancreas. I mean that's just totally different than, than common thought. So um, the other so it doesn't it does appear that things many things have changed in type 1 diabetes, but whatever the disease mechanism is don't seem to have changed. But here's what got really rubbed up. I really believe one of the biggest shortcomings we've had in, in type 1 diabetes research in recent history is we don't have under uh, uh, recognized the contribution of beta cells to the disease. Type 1 diabetes is a disease of beta cells in the following. And again, going back to George, he won a Banting Award in, in 2008 or uh, 2009, and he, he used a slide we had uh, pulled up. Uh, our impot had started, and one of the things that, that um, he noted in those cases, and we, we published together later, was what we were calling type 1 diabetes potentially being a little eye of the pancreas, meaning most everybody understands the concept of vitiligo and the, the um, focal uh, loss of uh, pigment-producing cells. It's, it's much like that in the pancreas, meaning that if you take a look at a single section in the pancreas of somebody with type 1 diabetes, you'll see islet cells that look essentially normal, normal content of insulin cells. But And I don't have it here, but you can go out. We'll have it on the next slide. You can go to other parts of the, the remnant pancreas and see just glucagon-producing cells. Uh, for example, on here. Look, if you look here, uh, a different case where, again, in this upper islet here, you'll see islets that will be positive for uh, uh, insulin and glucagon in the right, in the next section, there'll be only glucagon-positive cells. And so, there again, this is this focal nature of beta cell loss in type 1 diabetes. Uh, just uh, again, that's to us seems to suggest a, a selected targeting, uh, uh, a sort of a sniper attack in the pancreas over a long period of time. Another reason, another thing that we think they, um, our NPOD and then also the group of Peter Butler at UCLA showed was the persistence of beta cells in long-standing type 1 diabetes. Again, in the original model of George Eisenbart, you hit this zero point. But the reality is, is that if you have a whole pancreas and you look hard, hard enough, 90% of people with type 1 diabetes, even if you're out 30, 40, 50 years, will have a beta cell, some remnant of beta cells. Now, they're not certainly not enough to um, overcome the need for exogenous insulin replacement. Often they're single beta cells or little clusters of beta cells. Uh, often are located around ducts. Where they come from, we don't know. Um, and oftentimes you will have C-peptide undetectable, but it does seem like for whatever reason the immune response never goes to full completion in terms of destroying the beta cells. And this is actually getting off MPOD data minute, but again, just how the textbooks are changing, uh, also a change, uh, change of thought in that. Um, up until the last couple years, people would say, well, again, within a, a, a short, using old DCCT data, 
Within a short period of time with type 1 diabetes onset, you essentially sit, uh, hit a situation where almost everybody is C-peptide negative. They don't produce C-peptide over extended period of times. But now that, now that we have better assays for C-peptide, the, the views on this are changing. And Richard Horn published this uh, paper earlier this year that says that with these more, more sensitive assays, it actually flips. And that actually it's the situation where most people with type 1 diabetes actually do produce some C-peptide for decades after the disease. Now the question is, is uh, or in one of the hot topics is, is, is there benefit? Even if you produce the tiniest amount of C-peptide, is it beneficial to, say, complications avoidance or disease management? So again, here's a nice case where um, chemistry is, is backing up what we've been reporting for the last couple of years with, with pathology. So when we see alignment, that's good. The other thing, we, we, reason we believe beta cells are important disease and involved is, is, again, if you look at the pathology, and this goes to the heterogeneity of disease, not all type 1 diabetes is alike. And um, uh, I, I personally believe, and it may be an overestimate, but somewhere around 1 in 5 to 1 in 6 people in the, in the U.S. that are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes probably have some form of type 1 diabetes, but it's not the classical one that we see because in NPOD we'll see all sorts of situations, including ones like on the left-hand side where individuals with disease will have amyloid plaques. We have individuals with diagnosed with type 1 diabetes that their pancreas is replete with insulin-positive cells, but yet they're taking exogenous insulin. But the, the key notion is, is that there's a diverse pathology seen in a minority of type 1 diabetes patients. But again, the point I want to make here is that it's a disease of beta cells. And really quickly, there's been a number, I'm not taking credit for the work of others, this is the work of others, but paper after paper has been coming out using uh, NPOD cases that talked about finding uh, uh, in the beta cells uh, um, uh, ER, evidence of ER stress, um, uh, papers talking about uh, uh, expression of this uh, molecule called DP1 that long had been thought to be a marker of, of um, viral infection, but now it's been shown to be uh, a stress marker present in individuals either at risk for type 1 diabetes or at onset. So you can see, as in, like in this case on the left here, if you look at individuals with type 1 diabetes versus controls, marked expression or enhancement of the stress marker and then the beta cells. Um, this science translational medicine paper, oh yeah, this is a whole new area that's evolving about the unfolded protein response. You know, people in their powder are finding all sorts of situations prior to disease onset and onset that are marking a fingerprint, if you will, about abnormal protein processing. And um, although we don't have in vitro studies to suggest secretion, secretory aberrations, um, the beta cell, it suggests that the beta cells are not in a normal situation. Um, colleague of mine, Clayton Matthews, is one of the things that we've noticed in NPOD is, is that the cases is that um, as individuals are entering into the phase of type 1 diabetes or at the onset, they um, uh, have a downregulation of insulin expression. And so one of the things we've done, and don't fiddle with the lights here, it's not worth the time, but one of the things that we, 
we believe is, is that as people are going into diabetes, they be, essentially become, they, they try and go stealth. And one of the things they do is, is downregulate their glucokinase expression as well as their um, ATP uh, synthase expression. We've analyzed this. So um, the, the beta cells seem to be trying to, to do something to preserve themselves. And again, this is a, a hot area of, of investigation. When we've done um, analyses of, of uh, different, uh, other different uh, factors and doing uh, qPCR for different reactive oxygen species and TNF and, uh, and compared either control individuals versus type 1 diabetics, um, again, marked changes in the beta cells of the individuals that are on their way to type 1 diabetes. Again, these are just autoantibody positive people. And again, the big islands the, that are present there. So, we, um, uh, other changes that, that are suggested, downregulation of GLUT2 receptor, we have this whole notion of empty beta cells where you'll see islets where you can't stain them for insulin, but if you look at transcriptional or, or markers of development that are defined beta cell development, there'll be positive cells for that, and these cells don't express glucagon, somatostatin, PP. Uh, and so we think that, one of, again, one of the main uh, functions in MIMO, uh, Chile is all a co-author on this paper we put together, um, that yes, there's a potential for a homicide of the beta cells based on the immune side, but then there's also a suicide, a contribution of uh, uh, the beta cells to their own demise that's represented here. So, and unfortunately, very little attention has been put on this beta cell facet of the disease. It's been, we've pretty much viewed as a community the disease is a disease of CDAT cells. And the, again, getting to the point that uh, I made earlier is this, we think that the pathology is also suggesting that there's many, many different types of type 1 diabetes, and they're going to vary based upon when you were, when you were diagnosed with disease in, in early adulthood, juvenile, or adult. So in the last just few minutes, the other thing I want to do is, so it's a disease of the immune system. It doesn't seem to be changing over time. It's a disease of the beta cells. Last thing I want to do is talk about, it's also a disease of the pancreas. Uh, and Paul, hopefully, I, I think he knows this, but I, hopefully he'll, he'll like the way I present it. This is that we've actually known since the, the earliest paper was back in the 80s, but I didn't put it up here. The one I put up here is in the 90s. Is that if you, the, the study that looked at pancreas volume in individuals with type 1 diabetes of long duration, meaning 4.2 years, if you look at different age groups, whether they were very young, adolescents, or teenage years, and they broke it up by boys and girls. But the bottom line is, is that if you have type 1 diabetes, they, they said you had a smaller pancreas. But again, it was people with long-standing disease, so individuals looked at this and wow, just like snored because they said, well, insulin's a growth factor and clearly you might get some extra atrophy over time if you, you had that situation. But then what was happening is, is we, um, and NPOT in 2012, and then this group in Europe, took two different approaches to try and readdress the situation. So Colin Dillon in the UK did an MRI study of living patients that, again, had short disease duration, just under four months, and showed that by MRI that the pancreatic volume index in individuals with type 1 diabetes was much smaller than 
controls that were reasonably well age matched, 26% lower. So right within a month of it, we had this paper that came out in JAMA where we took our NPOT cases and we, we uh, looked at controls, type 1 diabetic patients, and again, in this case, it was again a little about 30, 30%, 32%, uh, so very similar to the MRI studies, reduced uh, weight in this situation uh, with type 1 diabetes. What was interesting in this study, and the kind of revolutionary to our, again, our thought, was even individuals that were autoantibody positive had a reduced pancreatic weight. So this kind of doesn't flow with, with the, the thought of what this was. And so now, this is unpublished data that we're about ready to submit, where, again, we've expanded bigger numbers and also included in the type 2 diabetic population. And you can see just based on total pancreas weight, we take all type 1 diabetics, Look at the decrease in size relative to the type 2 population. And then one of the things that we, we also have done now is, is we have corrected for BMI. So we get a relative pancreas weight. But even if you do that, again, it, it, actually it's nicer in that it helps uh, uh, bring the groups down. Look at, look at that drop in pancreatic size in individuals with type 1 diabetes versus type 2. Now, I wish I understood what this slide shows, as well as Mimo and others here that understand pancreatic development, but we've actually now, one of the things we do in NPOT is, is we look at the pancreas both as the head, body, and tail portion, meaning we weigh it as a whole organ and then look at the various components. And what we found is, is that actually, it's kind of interesting is that it's actually the tail that's the smallest component. And the tail's the, the component of the pancreas that actually contains the fewest number, or the largest number of beta cells in humans. So to us, it's kind of interesting how the tail is also the smallest. And then even though the type 2 pancreases are, um, you know, we're not totally different, it's the same trend occurs. And why that is, we don't exactly know. But, you know, maybe here too, when we start talking about maybe type 1 and type 2 diabetes aren't that different, we found that, find that interesting. Then the other reason we think we're going to blow up that, that the insulin is just a growth factor is, is we we did a, we took the, the MPOT cases, and I just want to have you look at these white circles here um, relative to these X's here. The X's are type 2 diabetes cases, and then the white circles are type 1 cases. And what we said was if the notion that lack of insulin is, is what causes atrophy, over time you would think that you'd get a negative slope here so that you'd eventually end up with a pancreas, say, the size of a peanut or something. Well, that doesn't happen. Because if you look, and this is cross-sectional, but if you look, it's like one small, always small. Right? So, um, we, uh, so we're, we're intrigued on this idea and think that this, uh, and then where it really gets intrigued, and this is where Lori and I were talking about, is this, um, here's the other interesting thing. If you actually were to poll a series of uh, transplanted, uh, type 1 diabetes transplant people and say, well, how many islets are in the pancreas? So they're going to say 1 million, because that's true. Uh, it's about a million islets in the pancreas. But actually, the beta cell mass in type 1 diabetes in adults varies dramatically. And so this, from this paper a couple years ago, if you look at adults, so this is age 20 and over, you have a logfold difference the amount of beta cell mass in the pancreas. People don't talk about this. 
but it's true. You, 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 there's a, quite a variance in controls the amount of beta cells. And if you take this paper, so Chris Rhodes, who may be familiar with some of you, we published this paper based on N5 cases a couple years ago. Um, in mice, they, there's a situation where uh, it had been reported that shortly after birth, you get this great wave of beta cell apoptosis, large amount of beta cell replication, then it declines with age. We see something like that in humans, meaning that when we took a series of controls and looked across ages, after you get into the teen years, the amount of beta cell replication you see is like next to nil. And, but where you get a lot of beta cell replication is in the very early life, most of the first two years. So we're beginning to think now, well, if in adults you have this mass variance in beta cells, and then most of it, your replication occurs early in life. At what age do you get fixed into a path of X beta cells? And then, so we think that this is going to be an area. I'm going to close on that. Uh, a very interesting. Close on that one section. But the pancreas is clearly abnormal in type one diabetes. And I get this commentary that's going to come out next month in diabetes. But uh, a lot of things have been described in there. I'm going to go really quick. Um, you'll see in the online. Uh, uh, article on diabetes that says exocrine infiltrates are higher in type 1 diabetes cases in the work of Matthias von Herat. Um, just so just random, having random CD8 cells, CD4 cells, CD11C cells in the exocrine pancreas, higher in type 1 diabetes, suggesting some sort of perhaps leakiness. The amount of neutrophils in the exocrine pancreas are higher. If you actually look at basement membranes, another impact study, if you look at basement membrane um, leakiness uh, in the type 1 diabetes pancreas. Pancreas is leaky. It appears leaky at the level of the islet cells. Again, almost in a transplant-like setting, um, we published this paper that if you look at C4D um, expression in, across the pancreas in type 1 diabetes cases, far higher uh, relative to um, controls or autobody positives and even type 2 diabetic pancreas. The exocrine pancreas is not normal in type 1 diabetes, nor are the beta cells. So we need to get off of the just the CD8 cells. So in the last two minutes, what I want to do is, is just hammer on some wild ideas that we have that if, if I come back in five years, well, if I'm wrong, we maybe won't have it back in five years. But if, if I'm right, I think we're, we'll rewrite the textbooks here. So when George put the figure together, he was actually quite smart and that he never, he never put a, a value on beta cell mass. So this is right out of the NGM article. But most people in the time since have put a, a value and they put 100%. So some of the ideas that we have is, is that maybe that if you in early life get fixed to a certain number of beta cells, that this may determine how quickly you develop the disease. And that for an individual that has high beta cell mass, would be very different from somebody like here, and certainly different from somebody like here. Just an idea. A second thing is, is we've spent so much time trying to find out, well, what's the environmental trigger of diabetes? Is it cow's milk? Is it breastfeeding? Is it, um, you know, a virus? Is it a bacteria? Is it uh, hygiene? Maybe just the amount of beta cells that you have is, is essentially enough to actually represent a trigger in and of itself. And then those environmental events just put stress events on top of this that accelerate the disease. Another idea is, is that, again, we, we talked about the absence of insulitis, is, is that 
maybe there, and we do believe that there are people that uh, are autoantibody positive that never go on to develop disease. And we think that over time what, what's happening is, is that there's a number of people that have essentially an aborted autoimmune response that um, they, they, they'll have some of those pseudoectropic islets, loss of beta cells, but they just never go on disease because they either have too much genetic pr protection or a lack of something environment to push them on. Another idea that we have or, or think are evolving is, is that, um, that those uh, concepts uh, related to beta cells that I mentioned are going to be the key drivers to the disease, and we totally underappreciated that, meaning beta cells contributing to the disease. Um, another factor is, is that we, given that positive insulitis and seeing loss of beta cells but no active insulitis, we're wondering if that the disease, rather than be a linear curve of autoimmunity, represents a series of pulse, pulse waves of attacks, like this, periodical. And it may vary, by, certainly by age. And then again, this whole notion that for the majority of patients, the immune system never quite goes to full completion in terms of destroying the beta cells. Um, and that, uh, so these are, these hypotheses, I think, are, are where we're moving forward. And again, the nice thing about going back to George is that we, we, we were able to sneak this paper out when he had passed before we got it, but we've essentially taken that original model and put at least eight major changes that need to be considered in it. And since that time, we probably have at least four more that we, that we could add. But they're, they're, they, they kick into the count this notion that, you know, the waves of loss, one of the things that we're uh, thinking about is the environment may not be this initial precipitating event that environment's important all throughout. So I, I, I want to thank you all for listening, and hopefully they, we uh, gave you some new ideas to think about type 1. Thank you. Well, I haven't thought that. Uh, I mean, there's old data to suggest that. And uh, people are actually looking at that now to try and see if that component's in there. Um, certainly, like Remy knows, the uh, whole notion of complement, autoantibodies, B cells as APCs, they, they kind of rise and fall in terms of their, their expression. We're not sure the, the answer, direct answer to your question now, but um, there is a group that, that's looking at this to try and see what in the exocrine component is so unique to, to allow for this and you know what's the immunological driver. Because those were long-standing type 1 diabetes patients too. Um, and so one of the things we want to do is, is reanalyze this with new, new onset cases um, to try and see why there seems to be a progression over time. But I, I still think there's a, a CD8 component disease, but um, what the role of uh, the C4D staying is, we don't know. Was the C4D distributed throughout the pancreas or primarily in the audience? In the pancreas. And a, a renal pathologist blindly analyzed this and it was one of those things where he ranked, I could say there was 100 samples, and he ranked them from like 1 to 100. It was one of those data plots where when it was decoded, it, it was just phenomenal where everybody on the diabetes side was up high and the controls, it, it was really amazing. Other questions? Mark, based on some of your newer constructs, could you speculate if you were to design a human trial 
Yeah, so I, I think uh, combination therapies are, are the great, great, well, one th two things. is One is I think we need to approach the disease uh, ideally from those at younger onset versus older onset. Um, just the pathology suggests there are two different diseases and even some of the serology. So I think age stratification. And we have learned that from some of the trials that have been using rituximab, ATG. Um, there, there are age effects, meaning... Um, B-cell-directed therapies, rituximab, work best in younger individuals, whereas ATG therapy seems to work better in older type ones. So even some of the data suggests that. The second thing is, is I think you need to target both the immune response and beta cells. We need to get into incretin therapies or in the mold. We need to try and use uh, compounds that would preserve beta cells and target beta cells, reduce stress, um, because we believe that I didn't, again, I didn't put it on there about the 85 to 95% loss. Actually, I think at the time of onset, you probably have about 40% of your beta cell mass still there, but it's just sickly, and it's it's on the cusp. It's either going to be recovered or not. And if you do, if you just target the immune response, you know it's it's going to tilt and just die. So I think again, therapies that, that target beta cell health would be in combination with the immune modulators is the way to go. But to follow up on the issue of infiltrates, uh, is it possible that the fact that there's no pericolitis in humans and there's also no CE4 is related? Because in, in mice, you have a lot of the CE4 related to T cells and then prevent the CDAs from damaging the items. And this CDA cell accumulate around the item, but you don't see that in humans. I think there could be a defect for CE4 T cells to go to the island and then for T regifies to so yeah, absolutely. So part of the reason I, 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 if I can get back here quick enough to make a point, the part of the reason I think that this may be the reason that periencephalitis is common in mice versus in humans has to do with the islet architecture. And then yeah, here we go. So um, this is a uh, a human islet on the left, and what you'll see is is that a human islet. It's almost like the old thing with the pickup sticks or whatever, where you throw it out, meaning you'll have beta cells, alpha cells. It's, it's very disorganized, and there's not this capsule. They're not so capsular on the outside of the outlet. Whereas in the, my, oh, and then if you look at human islets, and we probably had other speakers talking in, very, very heterogeneous in terms of the amount of beta cells in a given island. Mouse islets are very different. They have a, a very nice defined capsule to them, and their architecture is much, much, much more organized. And, and, and the quantity of beta cells in a mouse islet is much higher. So I, my personal bias is, is that some of the difference, some of the difference has to do with just the differences in the islet architecture between the two species, including their content. Um, but then uh, the other thing is, is that this, um, we haven't begun the studies to look at the role of the uh, exocrine pancreas in the mouse versus human in its contribution. So if in the humans it's kind of leaky, I don't know if that exists in the mouse. And so we're, we're, it's a great question, but we just don't know the answer yet. 